We'll start with a quote. For so long as the mind remains in the head, where thoughts jostle one another, it has no time to concentrate on one thing. For so long as the mind remains in the head, where thoughts jostle one another, it has no time to concentrate on one thing. But when attention descends into the heart, it attracts all the powers of the soul and body into one point there. This concentration of all human life in one place is immediately reflected in the heart by a special sensation that is the beginning of future warmth. This sensation, faint at the beginning, becomes gradually stronger, firmer, deeper. At first only tepid, it grows into warm feeling and concentrates the attention upon itself. That was from Theophan the Recluse. So let us remember that as we explore samadhi, we are including the heart. And as we'll see tonight in looking at the piece of paper in front of you, it shows up in many different ways. Another quote. This is from Suzuki Roshu. When we practice zasen, our mind always follows our breathing. When we inhale, the air comes into the inner world. When we exhale, the air goes out to the outer world. The inner world is limitless, and the outer world is also limitless. We say inner world or outer world, but actually, there is just one world. In this limitless world, the air comes in and goes out like someone passing through a swinging door. If you think, I breathe, the I is extra. There is no you to say I. What we call I is just a swinging door, which moves when we inhale and when we exhale. <laughs> it just moves. This is all. When your mind is pure and calm enough to follow this movement, there is nothing, no I, no world, no mind, nor body, just a swinging door. So when we practice zazen, all that exists is the movement of the breathing. But we are aware of this movement. But to be aware of the movement does not mean to be aware of your small sense of self, but rather your universal nature or Buddha nature. Last night, uh, Amana led us into a, a, a wonderful a reflection on how how mindfulness supports samadhi. This is a, a kind of a traditional talk that we do in various forms and all, I guess, what are 17 years of these retreats now. And tonight, we're going to flip it around a bit and we're going to look at how samadhi supports mindfulness, but as I prefer to say it, it we look at how samadhi supports wisdom. And mindfulness is one of the means to wisdom, just as is the samadhi a means to the wisdom. Part of what we're cultivating to acquire wisdom, to acquire insight, to see things as how they are, to see the nature of this realm, and then to see beyond this realm.
Well, uh, uh, you know, the first night, uh, the first guided meditation we started with, uh, the, I, I remember this because I was the one leading it, I asked you to bring mindfulness front and center, and Mana mentioned that last night. And so here in this talk, in the same way, asking you to stay in your body, just to have the felt sense of your experience, but also to bring mindfulness front and center here too. So one is not contradicting the other. It's not that way. One of the confusions around these two practices is some people view them as separate practices, some asamata and, and uh, vipassana, and others view them as simply one practice with the, the balance of these two dimensions. I don't find that a very interesting question. So I actually don't bother to have a view about that. Either way, and please hear me, either way, you will always be utilizing the, the samatha for mindfulness and you will always be using mindfulness if you're going to increase your capacity of, of, of samadhi. So in each instance, we're increasing the capacity of one or those or the other. We're increasing our mindfulness and, and the, 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 the collecting and unifying the mind really helps with that. Or we're increasing our samadhi and we really must have mindfulness for that. And it's very logical. It's not hard to think about that because if you don't have mindfulness, you don't know if you're on the breath or not. You, know, you don't know if you've wandered off. You don't know what needs to be balanced to help you stay with the breath. And if you don't have a collected and unified mind, there's, there's, there's no time and there's, there's, there's no executive functioning present to cultivate mindfulness. So we need both in each instance. And finding the right balance for you is a day-to-day -day thing, a sit-to-sit -sit thing, and then a kind of where you are in development in general, when you come to a concentration retreat, you come to a Vipassana retreat. You, you, experience tells you what you need to do and you kind of feel your way into what you need to develop. So uh, if we can now, oh, well, one other thing about this. Uh, one way to say that is the two are interdependent and therefore um, have a kind of unity or kind of co-arising, if you like that word, or familiar with that word. And uh, uh, as we now turn to look at the sheet, we're gonna see their independent nature as we look at this sheet. This sheet represents part of the blueprint of the Dhamma. And does anyone not have a sheet? There's extra ones up front if you, everyone's got one. Once, twice, three times. Now, I don't want you to get over-involved in this sheet. On the other hand, on uh, Tuesday, you will not be allowed to leave till you pass the test of a... <laughs> so, I'm sure it just took a quick glance to get all of this anyway. And you recognize, oh, I already knew every bit of this. <laughs> uh, so I'll first direct your attention down to the bottom, to the Anapanasati Sutta uh, in bold. This is mindfulness of the breathing sutta that's in the Majjhima Nikaya. Oh, by the way, one other thing first. My dear colleague Sally compiled this list for us years ago, and you'll see her name down there in the corner, and we just had lunch with her today. She came over to um, uh, visit with us. 
So, um, uh, so the Anapanasati Sutta divides the, the uh, developing of concentration through the breath and uh, uh, these four tetrides. And I, I don't want to get into the, uh, the whole experience of that. But just rather to have you look at the, um, the first four, the breathing in long, breathing in short. These, this is uh, also found completely there in the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, so, uh, which is the four establishments of mindfulness that uh, Amana referred to last night. So the one, two, three, and four are, are really establishing mindfulness. And then uh, out of the, once one establishes a certain level of, of concentration, that one starts experiencing rapture. And another uh, point I'm wishing to make is that one way to understand rapture is rapt attention. So you, 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 it always gets associated by, in people's mind with a lot of, you know, like a lot of fireworks or some kind. But if you've got rapt attention, then you're, that, that is a form of rapture. You, ha, you have, that, you have that, that PT arising in that way. Rapt attention is uh, it's very exhilarating in, a, in and of itself, but there, so there doesn't have to be anything else. The mind is really engaged in it. It's rapt. Nod heads, if that makes sense to you, please. Some nodding their heads, some, oh, well, now we've got more, thank you. <laughs> so um, uh, then if you will notice still in the Anapanasutta, that, that number 10 is called gladdening the mind. I love teaching gladdening the mind. I haven't done that on this retreat for various reasons. But it is, that is gratitude is one way of gladdening the mind. And so sometimes the Buddha would say to, you know, to a monastic, go sit, under, go sit under a tree and make yourself comfortable, gladden the mind, and begin to practice. And so... Um, this, this gladdening the mind, this gratitude is, again, one way to do that is something that you can use. You can think of all the things you're grateful for. You can think of the Dhamma, being grateful for the Dhamma. Uh, be grateful for all the people that are supporting you and being here, the people from your home life, the people, the staff here on the retreat, uh, the, the, the retreat managers, the teachers, and so forth. That all can help you with this concentration, because as you see, the very next step is the arising of a concentrated mind. And then from there, the mind goes into uh, more of an insight aspect of this, having to do with contemplating impermanence, contemplating fading away, contemplating cessation, and contemplating relinquishment. Those would each be a long description <laughs> for, and we don't, we're not gonna do that for tonight. Okay, so that's the first one. Then the second one, look at the Eightfold Path, if you will, please. So as you look at the eight, Eightfold Path, it, you, it starts with right view, uh, uh, samaditi, and then goes to right intention and so forth. And you, you see that concentration, samadhi, is the, is the last of this. And you see that mindfulness precedes it. One way to understand samadhi and sati, mindfulness, is that they're part of these larger modalities for learning or perception. So that the right view and the right intention and the right speech and right action and all this, they're all, they're all forming something together. 
Last night, Amana made reference to uh, not uh, the, that you can't separate mindfulness uh, in, in, from from the the larger course of the Eightfold Path. So it is with concentration. It's a particular kind of concentration we are developing. It's the concentration that is useful for liberating the mind, for liberating the heart. That's the, that's, it's, a, it's a whole developmental path. We have separated this out as we often do, like the concentration retreat is developing just one of these aspects of the Eightfold Path. We also will look at, at wise intention, samasamkapa, as, as a separate item sometimes, that where we are again, we're developing one capacity for the sake of our ability to do the whole path. Does that make sense to you? That so, so when, when we're setting something aside the way we're doing on this retreat is not an end in itself. It is to develop that capacity so it can work in this greater, much greater uh, uh, path leading to impermanence, fading away, cessation, relinquishment, and so forth. Many different ways of saying that. I'll say it some other ways tonight. And that's kind of important because when we're here, we can get saying, oh, this must be, this must be an end in itself. It is, a, it is developing a capacity in itself, but always in context. We don't ever lose the fact that what we're doing is following the Buddha's dictum that he teaches one thing and one thing only, suffering the end of suffering. So our ability to recognize what is suffering and not suffering, and then to have the empowerment that allows us to be able to choose non-suffering. That may sound easy, but it's not. Because we will choose suffering over and over again. And if you doubt that, you can just review the last few hours of your life. <laughs> okay, so uh, next, next let's look at the five spiritual faculties. Ordinarily, we give a Dhamma talk on this subject, but we, there's always, we're always vying for various topics, and so we did in this particular retreat. Uh, and notice that the, these five uh, spiritual faculties, they are, they are uh, both factors in themselves, they're faculties within themselves, but they also build. They, one leads to the next, to the next, and we use them we use them interchangeably so we're developing all five at once and but yet there is a there's a kind of uh, movement towards an end so we start with faith if you don't have any faith you won't bother you why give up a week of your life 10 days of your life if there's not some degree of faith how much faith did it take to get you here just enough faith that it might be possible that this might possibly lead to somewhere and uh, even more daring, it might possibly work for you. <laughs> That's all the faith we need. Sometimes we get to thinking we have to have so much faith, we have to have absolute conviction. And there is something called absolute faith. But it, it starts out with much more of a, just a possibility. And then we get little moments of verified faith where we had, a, we had just a moment, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in your, uh, your dorm uh, this morning when suddenly everything was crystal clear. 
or you're sitting here in the hall, you realize that you can see what the mind's doing. All of these little moments, a moment of, 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 of rapt attention, a moment uh, of really great calm. And those are little moments of verified faith. And they give us the uh, movement forward. They are onward leading, it's said in the Dhamma. And then that, the second of these is energy, the energy to practice. And so we have, we, we, one of the things we've been learning on this retreat that you will use in mindfulness, uh, just as much as you've used it in collecting unifying the mind, is how to manage your energy, how to cultivate more energy, how to recognize when you're being unwise with your energy. All of this uh, skill around energy, because this, uh, this process of, of connecting and sustaining uh, asks for a lot of energy. So, so without realizing it, you're, you're developing skills that you're going to use throughout. And so nothing is ever wasted, and it's applied everywhere. That's the, the blueprint. It's like if you, if you can just be still and, and feel everything you know about the Dhamma, you realize it's a hologram. Where every, in every piece, in, in, the, in this, this moment of, of, of uh, virya, all of the Dhamma is there. You can see it in these lists. Everything is so interconnected. It is the most dazzling thing I have ever seen as a structure of how to deal with the mind-heart. I am as uh, in awe as, as I've ever been. It never, it, it, I'm always just completely just bow before it. So this energy, and then that leads to the mindfulness. So in, in, this, in this particular map, this particular way of development, there's other maps as you'll see in the different list. So now we develop mindfulness. And with mindfulness as a requirement in one sense, to varying degrees, we then develop concentration. Again, though, the, for mindfulness to really mature, we need the concentration. For mindfulness to mature in wisdom, we have to have the concentration. And if you took mindfulness and concentration together, you end up with wisdom, panya. So you start to see how this works. And uh, it can, if, you, if you have some feel for this, it builds, uh, it builds uh, sadha, it builds faith. The sadhana comes from, comes from uh, your actual experience. And the, the reason to give you this, this, this list is to help you see the big picture and help you to realize how uh, wise you're being during these 10 days, how, how skillful you're being in developing skills, how all of this is wholesome activity towards all of our Dharma aspirations. So uh, uh, the, uh, uh, I said at the beginning of this that, uh, that we're, we're gonna be looking at how samadhi supports wisdom and uh, you can see why, because of the five spiritual faculties right there. Then if you will look at virtue, because again, Amana last night talked about the importance of sila. And uh, again, this blueprint, how everything's tied together. So the, the, when we have, when we can uh, direct our attention in ways that are skillful and sustain that attention in ways that are skillful, uh, we, we start to have, uh, we start to be able to have enough mindfulness and so forth that we are, we don't, at least this day or this hour, 
we are free from remorse. And this is called the bliss of blamelessness. And retreat is a good time to open to notice, can you feel that today? It's wonderful to feel the bliss of blamelessness. And it's such a, it's kind of an unexpected reward because you're not doing it to kind of get something. You're doing it to kind of avoid something. <laughs> you're avoiding the dukkha. But it turns out that there is a, there is a bliss just in living this, a life that's harmonious in the community, harmonious with yourself, harmonious with this earth. So there is this, this, um, this sila leading to this kind of uh, uh, blamelessness, which is a kind of joy. And joy, happiness, is the proximate cause of concentration. And there you have this rapture, and then this sukha, and then the one-pointedness. So those jhana factors all appear uh, and, and they can they 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 can they can all appear as you go. So you with you go joy, rapture, tranquility, happiness, concentration. So starting with sila, you can end up in concentration. And just as you can be your faith can you can get so inspired by your faith, you can have in beginners first time they've come to a retreat or even a day long. Sometimes that happens to them. They get so concentrated just because they become so inspired. In the same way, you can you can feel the ease. So uh, you know you're not beating on yourself because you really feel like okay, this day, it's it's you know this is okay. And you can you can just fall into a concentrated state. The mind becomes collected and unified from this blamelessness. And then with the, the seven awakening factors, I'll just have you see these now. These are the seven factors that we develop in order to get off the samsaric wheel of suffering. And it starts with mindfulness. And as you will see, it goes through both uh, the, all of those jhana factors of energy and rapture, but it goes to tranquility, this pasadi, and then it, 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 it uh, flowers into a concentration. And then from there, into an equanimity, upeka. And uh, I want to, as, as much as I have time, I want to really focus on equanimity uh, that's arising from concentration as the bridge, as one bridge between uh, uh, our collecting and unifying the mind and the mindfulness, this, this cultivation of equanimity. It's such a powerful thing. So I'll come back to that. So now we put the papers down. Yeah, your essays will be due Tuesday morning. <laughs> and, and the test will be partially verbal and partially written. And you can have study groups. <laughs> okay. So um, one way to understand this 10 days of work, which is all about access concentration, neighborhood concentration. We have constantly made reference to this. We are not trying to deliver you into the various jhana states. Some may have some bit of that, some may not. Some may have not even a hint of it, that it, it's irrelevant because that is not the goal. The goal is for you to know what it is like to collect and unify the mind and feel the, the qualities of when the mind's a little bit collected and unified so that you start to recognize 
how to collect and unify the mind and start to recognize what gets in the way. And all of those things that you learn, you will turn right around and apply in your mindfulness practice. So that, that's the first reason. We're, we are, the first reason we are preparing for the jhanas and the, the various forms which you will hear more about tomorrow night. Uh, but we, this, this access concentration, this neighborhood concentration is what leads you into those if that becomes part of what you want to explore in your practice. Many people do not, and then many people do. It's a personal, subjective thing for the most part. That people have various views and opinions about this, of course, because there is no subject that people don't have views and opinions about. So that's the first reason for, for going into deep samadhi. The second reason for doing this retreat is, uh, as I referred to in the five spiritual faculties, for you to enhance your ability to do vipassana. We only do this once a year. There's lots of vipassana retreats. The people who come to this retreat are learning how to collect and unify their mind to empower their their insight practice to empower Vipassana practice. So that's, that's the second reason. And if, if you get confused about that, go back and look at the five spiritual faculties on the sheet later, not now, but go back and look at that. Because it starts with this, it starts with faith and energy, uh, goes to mindfulness, then to concentration, then to wisdom. So we need both for wisdom. We need both. So samadhi creates the qualities of mind this, that, uh, that help with mindfulness, particularly with keen insight. And a number of you and the uh, people I've had the chance to work with, I've asked you repeatedly to notice the qualities of mind, uh, at least as much, if not more, into whether or not you're noticing the jhana factors. This quality of mind, when the mind is content, when the mind is still, when the mind feels cooperative, when the mind feels placeable. I urge everyone in this room to start to get interested in that in your, in your Vipassana practice, in your Brahma-Vihara practice, and in your Samadhi practice, your Samatha practice. To start to notice these qualities of mind. As they're noticed, they're more likely to appear again. Your psyche somehow goes, oh, uh, this person, uh, she's interested in this. They are interested in this. He's interested in this. There, there's some interest that oh, there's a, and somehow, and it's mysterious how that happens. But the more we're aware of those qualities of mind when they're present, the more likely there to be a future moment when they come in present. That is at least my experience, and my experience with working with lots of people. So. Um, uh, we do this. Uh, we do this in terms of the vipassana practice, and then we do it in relation to the Brahma Viharas, to uh, to do either the the mantra style repeating phrases that we use. That is a concentration practice. It can be hard at times for you to keep your mind on those phrases, even though you wish to keep your mind on them, and even harder still at times to drop in the heart like I read that concentration the dropping the concentration into the heart that's where it can really come from our Brahma Vihara practices are heart practices they they are they we are concentrating 
in the heart space. We're becoming one-pointed towards the well-wishing of the metta or the compassion of the karuna and so forth. So, um, maybe I left something out here. Let me look. It's not on here. So, um, the four Brahma Viharas, uh, so the, the metta, the, the, the karuna, the compassion, the mudita, the happiness, sympathetic joy for the happiness of others, and, and then the, the, the uh, upeka, this, this, uh, this uh, equ- equanimity. It shows up again, this equanimity. And so you're doing a, you're doing a uh, collecting and unifying practice, and it, and it builds equanimity. And without equanimity, if the mind has not gone through all of those stages where it's collected, at times it's really hard to do to open the heart because we're not ready to forgive. We, yes, we wish this person, our, our good friend who's kind of a frenemy, we wish them happiness, but not too much happiness. <laughs> and so we, we, uh, the, the, this being able to collect and unify the, the, the mind around the heart space has this purifying effect to all of our Brahmavahara practice. Very, very um, uh, inspiring in that way. So you, you are serving three different areas of practice and all of these different lists in what you're doing this 10-day period. Now I want, to, um, I want to touch on something that I touched on the first night that hasn't been uh, picked back up in any way. And um, that is this uh, capacity of your mind utilizing mindfulness to recognize what's true in the moment. And yes, mindfulness has that capacity to recognize, but the actual recognition is a phenomena. You're either recognizing you're still on the breath or not on the breath. You recognize clinging or not clinging. You recognize the, 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 the aversive mind or the, the restless mind, all through mindfulness. But, but that mindfulness leads to this uh, act, this phenomena of a recognition. And uh, that's, not so, uh, that's not been so emphasized in the people that I've studied with. But I, as, uh, as I've grown more and more mature in my practice, I have come to see that as such an important moment. And this collected and unified mind supports the mindfulness having, having enough presence that this bang of recognition happens. So you can be mindful, but it's not really registered. Like you're, you're sort of knowing. Like it's like sort of recognizing whether or not you're on the breath. You can be mindful of your breath, and you're more or less on the breath, but you're not fully on the breath. I had uh, three or four of you talk about that, recognizing that you weren't, you, at some point you realize, well, I'm on the breath, but I can't say I'm 100% on the breath. That's a recognition. That's a moment you recognize. And, uh, and of course, these people like all of you were being, you're being mindful of whether or not you were on the breath or you couldn't be practicing. So this, this, uh, this, this uh, cognitive moment, we will call it, this cognitive moment where there is recognition. Uh, in that first guided meditation, and maybe the first evening too, I don't recall, I spoke about the here and now and pointed out repeatedly the usefulness of here and now. Here and now is a recognition that you're here and now. 
that, that, that any mindfulness is occurring in this moment because this is the only moment you're present to have mindfulness. Collecting and unifying the mind really helps with this recognition of the here and now. You're collected enough that you can, you can turn your attention to, yes, this moment. So let's just do that together for a moment. Just come into this moment here and now. You don't have to straighten your spines. Just here. There's a felt sense to here. Now. It's a felt sense. And they combine into this, this moment of here now. Here, where? In this room. When? Now. There's presence. The mindfulness is bringing a presence. That is to be cultivated. It's to be cultivated, that feeling. It so helps with insight. It also helps you have a much better life, <laughs> as far as that matter goes. And um, the, again, the collected and unifying that you're doing, which you may think, oh, this isn't done well or whatever, you're not recognizing necessarily the capacities that you're building, like muscle building or like a training to, to detect things with eyes or ears or nose, where you detect ever more sensitive things. Each person in this room has had that happen with or without awareness. It's impossible for it not to be true because of the nature of practices. We know practice from all sorts of psychological studies. So there, this recognition for purposes of mindfulness and um, uh, that, that recognition that, that recognition brings the satipanya, mindfulness and wisdom, so there's uh, the first time I ever heard those two words together, I went back to my room and I wrote it in the front of my calendar that I carry around a little paper calendar. I'm old-fashioned, I know. Don't need that pointed out. And uh, I have an online calendar, but I really trust the paper calendar. <laughs> so, uh, and I wrote in the front of that so I would see it repeatedly, Satipanya, because I realized I didn't quite understand what it was. This was like my second retreat or something. But I knew something that was what I was aspiring towards. Even though I couldn't really describe verbally what it meant, but there was something, it's when the person, the teacher was saying, and I was going, yes, to that. That was my yes. And so this, uh, this wisdom, this, this mindfulness with wisdom requires a kind of a recognition. This, this, and that's a collected there's a moment you've got to be collected enough to recognize the moment of wisdom you're having. That may seem vague to you, but in time, hopefully not. It is, one, say, as one way of looking at it is, this moment is like this. That's a recognition. This moment is like this. So uh, we have all of our views and opinions about it, but basic, a priori to all of our views and opinions to whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, uh, all of that, this moment's like this. It's just like this. Knee pain is like this. I, I broke my shoulder joint in three places uh, a June a year ago, having picked up a basketball after 50 years of never touching one. <laughs> Talk about lacking of mindfulness. And um, I, was, I, I, I broke it quite sharply and I passed out. So when I came to, uh, I, my, I was at staying at some friend's house and they came out 
because they heard me moaning, which I, of course, didn't know I was moaning. But I, they came out to check on me. And um, uh, once, once they got me on a table, I recognized that I'd cooked my goose. <laughs> I, it was an instant recognition. And the world switched. It was like this. Now it's like this. This moment is like this. I, I felt sure I had broken it. I had no idea the extent that I'd done damage. But this, the, the recognition was instant. And you know what arose? Equanimity. It rose on its own. It was amazing to see. It just rose on its own. This moment is like this. There was the equanimity. I didn't think, oh, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a Buddhist practitioner. I, I should be able to you know, handle the verse. There was no thought. There was zero effort of any kind. It's like this. That's the recognition. And that's how the mindfulness and having a collected and unified mind that creates equanimity, it, it bears fruit when needed in your life. Bears fruit when needed in your life. And um, it, it grows. It grows and it gets more and more widespread and more and more things can be known as it's like this. So uh, the, when, when, when it feels it's like this, there's less clinging. But if there's clinging, then you go, uh, clinging is like this. So you see, there's still recognition. You're not, you're not being washed away. You're, still, you're collected and unified. You're not washed away. You're still here. I'm uh, doing this for the felt sense of this. That you feel the, that you feel the power of this, the, the capacity. Because we don't want to be measuring by artificial things like uh, the, 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 the amount of jhana factors or something. This We want to be measuring by the actual capacity to be present in the moment. Because that is how this supports uh, supports and so uh, uh, likewise you know I, I uh, ask us all and as far as I could see looking around the room everyone took this this uh, the commitment to treating that you said you were practicing practice not results one could then come back and maybe ask you a few questions about how can you be so upset with not getting what you want if you're just practicing practicing but that's not on the quiz <laughs> So, um, but th that recognition that if we stay collected and unified, where we really start to see life as practice, it is so empowering and ironically empowering in relation to results too. But one can't sneak. One has to be truly lining up with this. That no, I, okay, life's a practice. I'm practicing developing the way I would wish to be. It is a value-based way of living. It's a value-based way of living. Uh, everything I do with my time, I do. I, I, I help people in changes and transitions. And I do it from the basis of values. And it's, um, that came from the Dhamma work. And it, is, it has worked so well for people to be able to make a change and transition grounded in their values. Because then no matter how it turns out, there, there's an okayness because they were just being true to themselves. They weren't going, it's got to turn out, or, oh, I made a really stupid mistake. When we're, when we're grounded in our values, it, we, we have a whole wider range of freedom. So 
Uh, likewise, this capacity of recognition creates the capacity for clear comprehension. For what, what's called, it's sampajana, it's called uh, clear comprehension. And in Zen, it's called appropriate response. And that Nanaponakatera uh, uh, teaches it as we recognize what's called for. Hear that word recognized again. Mindfulness allows us to recognize. We have to have a certain degree of collected and unified mind in order to have enough mindfulness to recognize what's called for. But that's just the beginning of clear comprehension. Next, there's a recognition of what's, what's suitable for me. So like there may be a huge thing that's called for, but I can only do this little bit of it. That could be in relation to social justice, politics, taking care of your of your sibling or your 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 uh, your child or your mother or your mother-in-law. You you know what's called for, but you also know what's suitable for you. So therefore, you don't get all into this contraction, all this suffering around thinking you're supposed to do all that's called for. You recognize recognize what's 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 suitable for you. You have to be collected, unified in your mind to do that because your heart or just the, the want, the pressure of the situation, you, you, you get confused and you think you're supposed to deliver it all and you can't. Or likewise, you become helpless in relation to larger social issues sometimes. So what's called for, what's suitable, and then we see with Dhamma eyes. We're seeing this. So whatever in our life that we're meeting and, and again, uh, when you're doing Vipassana practice, all sorts of stuff come up from memories, what's true now, what you're worried about in the future. And you, you, as you're seeing how to relate to it with clear comprehension, this is part you're seeing it with Dhammas. That's the way you're considering. You could consider it many other ways, like how do I maximize pleasure? That's a strategy. That's not the Dhamma strategy. The Dhamma strategy is all around uh, this, this suffering, how we're relating to the thing, not maximizing something that's ever-changing like, like pleasure. And then treating it as a moment of practice, is, which is where I first got this practicing practice from. And so that's, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of the, this point of recognition. And then um, turning to the, um, this, this equanimity, that equanimity is this what are the fruits of collecting and unifying the mind, going through calm, going through uh, this concentrated mind, and it comes to equanimity. It's grown, it, it develops as a capacity, it's a flowering. And again, the more you recognize that you have whatever amount you have, the more you're likely to have. Because we, because of our perception bias, we, that is to survive, we see what's wrong. We're always looking for what we don't have, what's wrong. It's, a, it's again, it's a survival trait, but oftentimes in, in life, it works against us. So when you recognize, oh, because so in the survival ways, you go, oh, I'm not collected unified enough, you know? But in fact, uh, uh, it would be that you recognize how much you have. You recognize, oh, I do have equanimity. Uh, so my, my, my kind of personal, personality-wise, biggest challenge around equanimity is airplanes and being late and being having sitting on tarmacs, which I've done my entire adult life. I used to fly oh, at least 100,000 miles every year. And so I spent a lot of time with that. And I've, I, would, I would prefer that we do the airlines different than the airlines have chosen to do it. And I have a little trouble letting loose of my view. 
And so therefore I can lose my equanimity around that because my view disturbs my, and my mind ceases to be collected and unified and I'm lost in my grumbling. And is it doing me any good? Is it doing any of the other passengers any good? Is anybody learning how to run an airline better? No. <laughs> All it is doing is causing suffering. And so, the, and so seeing the mind lose its collected unifiedness, one sees. So we're looking at equanimity. The equanimity meaning equanimity is not the same as calm. Calm is calm. This pasadi, this, uh, this tranquility. Equanimity is a balanced mind. So if it gets thrown off, it can come back. So there's, a, a, you know, it's like it can ride the wave of an emotion. It can ride, it can uh, ride the uh, abrupt change. Like when I, uh, you know, abruptly uh, broke my shoulder in three places. The equanimity allows that to, it's just the way it is. It's now like this. And so this is, and this collected unified mind is the empowerment of that and the equanimity allows the mindfulness to deepen and as the mindfulness deepens, more equanimity develops and uh, it just, it's such a wholesome uh, cycle in that way. This is a poem that, uh, where uh, he, this, this, the, this is Tony Hoagland, who's a wonderful poet, he died this year along with Mary Oliver. Somebody read Mary Oliver the other day. Mary Oliver died in the last 12 months also. We lost a lot of poets. W.S. Merwin died. Uh, it's called Phone Call. Maybe I overdid it when I called my father an enemy of humanity. <laughs> that might have been a little strongly put, a slight over-exaggeration an immoderate description of the person who at that moment, 2,000 miles away, holding the telephone receiver six inches from his ear, must have regretted paying for my therapy. <laughs> what I meant was that my father was an enemy of my humanity. And what I meant behind that was that my father was split into two people. One of them living deep inside of me like a bad king or an incurable disease, blighting my crops, striking down my herds, poisoning my wells. The other standing in another time zone in a kitchen in Wyoming with bad knees and white hair sprouting from his ears. I don't want to scream forever. I don't want to live without proportion, like some kind of infection from the past. So I have to remember the second father, the one whose TV dinner is getting cold while he holds the phone in his left hand and stares blankly out the window, where just now the sun is going down and the last finger trips fingertips of sunlight are withdrawing from the hills they once touched like a child. Wanting this kind of equanimity, the collected and unified mind that leads to the, this equanimity, the needing of mindfulness, so that we don't, in terms of our past and our present, we're not haunted, we're not tormented by past, present, 
or worries about the future, that we have this other way of relating. And this combination of the collected and unified mind, the, the, the equanimity, the mindfulness, just in having a life, having a wholesome life, having a, a life that's, that we're aligned with, that we're in harmony with, that, that's coherent, that feels authentic to ourselves. Way before we get to these, these uh, complete liberation, just liberation in the moment, just moment-to-moment -moment liberations in our life. That it applies at this level and becomes uh, absolutely important, deep levels of collected and unified mind for, for liberating insight. That's, that's, that's the, that uh, crossover insight. So um, equanimity uh, is the mindfulness. In the sheet, if you will remember, we started when the awakening factors, we started with mindfulness and we ended with equanimity. So they're bookends. They're bookends. They they balance all those other factors. They contain them. They are they're like the they're like they're both the beginning and end, and they're the way that all of them happen in the meantime. We need mindfulness, but we also need equanimity. To have equanimity, we we require a collected and unified mind. That's how these two fit together. So um, uh, equanimity is also uh, a, a preventive force against deluded impulses. So that when we, uh, whether coming out of the hindrance of mind or coming out of wanting mind, some sort of uh, a moment when we just get carried away, we get deluded in some way by this kind of wanting. That, uh, that this equanimity allows us to not get swept away by it. We pause, we, we, have, a, we have a chance to go, is this true or not? Can I, do I really align with this or not? It's a very important a factor in this way. Um, one person uh, in, uh, in uh, a, a practice discussion this week uh, made reference saying that I, I know I need to be more indifferent to things. And I said, oh no, no. No, that's not what that's not what's called for in the Dhamma. It's it's not indifference. It is a level of of detachment or a, a level of non-attachment, but never indifference. Never indifference. So as we learn to collect and unify the mind, we're not doing that by going to indifference. In, indifference uh, is like a a dead spot. It's it's. It's uh, cynical, it's, it's nihilistic, and the Buddha uh, repeatedly said, I do not teach eternalism or nihilism. And so it's not, it's not it's, we're learning to be with things and to care about them, but not to care so much that we get caught in the clinging. Does that make sense? T.S. Eliot put it this way, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Good Buddhist prescription. Teach us to care and not to care. To care in what way? To care enough to, to reach out, to act, to, to say our truth, to serve others, to dare to love. But teach us not to care, not to be attached to the outcome in such a way that it then shuts us down. It leads us to kill for peace. That's teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still 
Why to sit still? Because in the sitting still, we get to collect and unify ourselves. We get to bring the mindfulness present. We get to remember our deep intentions, the sila, the, the, the intention, the very values in which we're living. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Equanimity, this, this, as we develop equanimity through this collecting and unifying the mind, it does allow us to, to, to develop what I term this participant observer. So um, we're not being mindful, like, oh, uh, uh, a quart of milk at Trader Joe's, two, $2.49, you know, for a quart of milk at Trader Joe's. That's true. That mindfulness, that's, that's what uh, those readers, you know, the item readers at the supermarket, they'll tell you it's 2.49, and they can tell them when they're out of inventory, they're going to run out of inventory. There can be all sorts of, so that's a kind of, you could call that mindfulness in a sense. But no taste of milk. No taste of Oreos with milk. <laughs> so we're not wanting to be the removed observer but rather the participant observer, so that we are, we are present in our life, but we're present in our life with a degree of collected and unified mindfulness and clear intention and compassion in a way that allows us to meet the life, to live the life, to be alive in the life with wisdom. So we want to be careful not to lose track of that as we go through. So... Um, um, as we get more, as, as, as we become more uh, centered in our practice, the mindfulness does start to lead to wisdom. So it's not just that we're mindful of what's going on. It's not just that we have moments of purification as, as a temple did such a beautiful job of describing the other night. It's not just that we are able to recognize the hindrances when they come up, at least sometimes, and then even of those times we do recognize, sometimes hold them at bay, or they, they just don't come up as often. Those are all wonderful results, but there starts to be a deeper transformation, a deeper transformation. So we move from insight that's of a personal level, of a psychological level, that's often based on our narratives, to this uh, impersonal truth of our life, and we start to see more and more that what we think is our personal story is to such a large degree impersonal. My pain it may have different uh, narrative than yours, but it's pain. Your anger and your anger, they came from different reasons, but it's anger. Anger is universal, pain is universal. We start to see this and we start to see how it is that we relate in the mind that causes this clinging, this kind of, uh, that leads us in this samsaric circle. Again, because it's holographic, because every, the blueprint, everything's connected to everything in the Dhamma. Right here, you're creating good karma, the, you're planting good seeds for realization through your mindfulness practice that leads to deep liberation uh, what, uh, what ultimately is, is called a, ch a change in lineage in this way. So um, uh, as, we, as we start to see that there's this kind of, um, this kind of possibility, we start, to, uh, we start to look at our life uh, in, a, in a 
uh, ever larger way. Uh, in uh, one of the little maps, uh, as the mind becomes secluded from all the, the hindrances and all the taints, we start to develop a kind of detachment. And that detachment is not, again, indifference, but it's not being caught in. And that detachment leads to a kind of dispassion that, that it's like uh, the equanimity it grows to a whole nother, like it makes a quantity, uh, a, a quantitative jump. And then we have this, what's called cessation. And so here's this, here's like this, towards the very end of the path, and it's all connected, just in these little moments that we're sitting there, you know, with our breath and all. At this point in our practice time together, we have come to a decision point. And you have come to a decision point, not us so much, but we're facilitating your decision point. You, you are invited to make a consideration. Do I want to continue for the rest of this retreat in the Samatha practice full time? That is an option. Another option is to switch to Vipassana so you start doing Vipassana tomorrow morning. Starting tomorrow morning, you're invited if you want to do that. Or to do a combination where you spend part of the time collecting and unifying the mind. And when it feels to whatever degree that it's going to collect and unify in this moment, you switch to Vipassana. That's a third option. All right. So we've, we had a very interesting discussion among the teaching team about how many people actually heard what I just said. Because every year we, we come to this moment and then uh, some, some not insignificant percentage of people say, I never heard you say that you could stay with the samadhi practice. They'll come up and say, I was really disappointed that I had to switch. <laughs> and, and, uh, 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 and they will assure me that that moment, that that was never said. And it's always been said. So just to be safe. I know, I know that I can choose to continue with the Samatha practice. <laughs> Satisfied? <laughs> there's, there's sort of a, some old, old history around that from when she was here at this retreat, as she mentioned. And then the, uh, the so the, the, the end, this, if you turn to the Vipassana, you would still utilize the, an anchor object in your practice. We'll take you through this tomorrow morning. You all have been on a, because there's a requirement for a previous retreat, you've been on a, on a Vipassana retreat, so you know how to practice. But we'll give you a little guidance tomorrow morning to, to just, you know, uh, prime the pump, as it were. And um, again, uh, you, you can do that by first just a little bit of, of collecting unifying mind and then going to Vipassana, using the breath or some object still to stay present as needed. And, and then, or the third, you could divide it, you could spend half and half your time. You could, do, you could, or you could not know how long you're gonna spend. You start out with your, your, your uh, collecting unifying the mind and then you just wait for the, for the intuition to switch over. You can do it that way. There's lots of range of practice here. And no, there's not a right way. So let that go right now. 
It'll drive you crazy and it will not serve you at all. So it's not worth, it's not worth thinking about a lot. Just feel. You can wait and feel tomorrow morning what you're going to do. Some of you already know, having heard this. You already knew, just instantly. Just trust your felt sense of this. Don't try to figure it out. And if you choose one and you go, oh, that didn't work so well, then you go back to doing it some other way. I would suggest that you not jump, and back, j jump back and forth constantly. That'll, that, that's just going to build frustration. So you, you, try, you try it a while, and if, it, if you, you switch or you don't switch, and you see how that feels, and then you go the other direction. Or you can have some sits where you do all concentration, and some sits when it's really all mindfulness practice. It's just, it's Vipassana practice. Because mindfulness is actually not the practice, it's a means that you use in the practice of Vipassana. So we, when we say practicing mindfulness, we're practicing the, the capacity of mindfulness, but it's not vipassana or insight practice is the, is, the, is the really thing that we're doing. So I hope that's clear enough. I had this wonderful thing to read to you tonight, and I can't read it. And so you can watch me have disappointment for my, my, my greed aspect of myself, have disappointment right now. <laughs> And we'll, we will just, we'll close with just a moment of silence. So long as the mind remains in the head where thoughts jostle one another, it has no time to concentrate on one thing. But when attention descends into the heart, it attracts all the powers of the soul and body into one point there. The concentration of all human life in one place is immediately reflected in the heart by a special sensation that is the beginning of future warmth. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.